The audio clip you just heard was recorded this past summer during a Black Lives Matter march. The march started in front of City Hall in downtown Beverly and ended at the Unitarian Universalist Church in Marblehead. The ending point was strategic in that this congregation's Black Lives Matter banner had been previously, over the last couple of months, vandalized or ripped down. It was there at the end of the march where local community leaders shared their thoughts on race in America and the work that lay ahead. Of these speakers were this episode's guests, Nia and Shelby. After the event, I approached them and asked them if they'd like to be guests on Wi-Fi and Water, to speak more broadly about their experiences growing up on the North Shore as two young black women. This episode was recorded in two parts and shares their experiences of navigating white spaces. I'm Jarrett Carpenter, and this is Wi-Fi and Water. All right, good evening, Shelby and Nia. Welcome to Wi-Fi and Water. How are you guys doing? Great. I'm good. Great. Can I get a little more like... <laughs> Can I, get... I feel like you're mad nervous. <laughs> Um, I'm excited to be here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like orientation. You're not like, oh, I have to go through this to like be able to do other stuff in life. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Shelby, you're dialing all the way in from Amherst, Massachusetts. Yes, sir. What's, yep. What's going on there? COVID is going on here. Uh, it's kind of like off campus it's happening, but on campus it's kind of boring I guess and isolated and stuff that's really what's going on <laughs> that's so I'd on. imagine since you're a junior in college this is so different from being a freshman or a sophomore at least in your first semester pre-COVID because yeah. you could like go to parties hang yeah. out with people run into people make new friends just create new yeah. relationships all the time organically because that's like the whole point of college outside the classroom and now doing making new people meeting new people making new friends i'm like joining clubs i love doing that but yeah all that stuff is like halted right now and it's just like it's just like being at home that's it you're just always in your room and stuff so i i talk with my friends from school and we couldn't imagine what that would be like and so Mm -hmm. we're as we have just so much empathy for college students that now have to go to college but essentially live at home at college because there's just so little that you could do compared to maybe what it was for you when you first got to campus and you were making all these friends and kind of going out and being able to check out all this different stuff that's like going on and like live music and doing all that so yeah I liked being outside I loved being outside uh and going out places and yeah all that's kind of like not happening anymore so that's for sure on hold and yeah you're in new york are you living you in manhattan brooklyn where are you i'm in like right in between greenwich village and like union square so you're right in the heart yeah yeah do you know the university center at the new school are do you live there yeah oh that's super cool yeah it's like very overpriced but it's a really good location it's the most overpriced thing maybe on the planet for what you get Pre-recording, we found out that we both are narwhals because you go to the new school and I graduated from the master's program there. So that's very cool. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know that when they were choosing the mascot, they like threw it to the students because they want to be, you know, super democratic and progressive. And I wasn't there around this time, but they said that they had like four finalists and one of them was Chuck Norris. So mm-hmm. it's going to be the new school Chuck Norris's, but the new school Norris. That would have been so art schooly. 
it would be the most art schooly thing ever <laughs> to have Chuck Norris as your mascot. Yeah. I think the Norris is a good it was a good move. I think it was a great move. I think it was a great move. And so I want to thank you guys for hopping on this evening. And I met you guys oh so briefly in Marblehead. Well, I think it was the end of August. Yeah. Or the end of July. When was that? July. Actually? July. It was July. It really? was July. Yeah, I think it was, it was July because it got pushed July. back because one day was going to be so hot. It was supposed to be on a different day and it got pushed back, I think. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't like, make sense anymore. Yeah, it felt like a really, really long time ago. Well, that's because like COVID time every month is like two years. So. Right. So exactly. I wanted to have you guys on to talk about all things identity, especially as that focuses in your lived experiences in white spaces. Shelby, right before we started recording, I said, did you grow up in Marblehead? And then it looked like there was gonna be a lot of information there that was gonna be really good. So <laughs> do you wanna go ahead and talk about your background? And so, yeah, when I ask you, did you grow up in Marblehead? What does that look like? Complicated. Like people ask in college all the time, like where, where did you grow up? What's your hometown and stuff? And it's like, I don't know. I don't really have a hometown. I'm originally from Florida, I was born there in Miami, and a lot of my family is still down there, and just us, like my immediate family is up here. Yeah, and I've lived in like Lynn, Salem, Marblehead, Beverly, like, so I don't know, I don't really claim, but the longest I have stayed was Marblehead from like a little bit of middle school to high school. But even then it was, you know, claiming, I never really claimed Marblehead because of the whole, like everything going on and just being in this really white space. It was like, I don't know, I never said I'm from here and stuff. So that was just always interesting thing. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. So, but born in Florida and have spent really a lot of your formative oh, years. Yeah, majority of my time in the North Shore. So majority okay. of my life here. Okay, cool. And then Nia, how about you? Um, well, I used to think the same way because I came here at the same time Shelby did. Like, I think you were 12 or 13. Um, and at first I was like, oh, I don't know what I would claim. But now that I'm like my freshman year in college, I definitely claim Marblehead. But because I feel like even though I was in Salem since I was 12 or till I was 12, the most important years of like my development was in Marblehead. So yeah, I definitely claim Marblehead. So you, all right. So you claim Marblehead and Shelby, you're kind of like, eh. I feel yeah. like there's no way I could not do it. Like I. And, and why is that? Why is that? Because my most important teenage years, which is like what really makes you a person was here in this very white rich town like <laughs> I get those are like such strong attributes that I don't think it would ever leave how I identify myself and how you now living in the university center because where you live is like I always have felt that New York City is kind of like the Rome of the world in some sense people think it's like the center of the world because it's super metropolitan, very global. You can walk down the street, like you could walk between Washington Square and Union Square, and you could easily hear 20 different languages if your ear is like, if you're, that's what you're focusing on. Never mind the subway. And so now that you're there, your experience growing up in Marblehead shapes the way that you see things, your perspective, because I can't think of a different place than like Marblehead Neck and Devereaux Beach and like Union Square. 
Right. I mean, I used to go visit family when I was younger, so I always saw New York. I mean, I didn't see Washington Square Park, but I saw Washington Heights, which is like very different. So I knew I was totally aware of other cultures and like cultural diffusion, diffusion, but I wasn't like in it ever. And I don't feel any different when I'm in it now for some reason. It was like I've always expected to get to this moment. And what, and what moment is that? Of being around people that weren't all white. <laughs> okay, cool. And Shelby, you don't claim Marblehead because, because it seems like you spent the same year as being like end of middle school into high school, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I feel like uh, the difference between me and Nia, she was more integrated into it like into marblehead the marblehead scene whatever that is yeah what is that we could talk about that after (laughs) (laughs) she was way more into it i really was on the outskirts i didn't want to be there i was just like no and i always like i still wanted to like be with my salem friends like i was just not there at all until like senior year i was like oh yeah let me come out of my shell let me be here and stuff but yeah i wasn't integrated that much and, and what was the senior year that made you kind of be like, all right, I'll put down like, you know, put down my guard a little bit or something and kind of get a little bit more into Marblehead, if, if you could say it like that. Growth, maybe having more like autonomy of myself um, and my like my identity more because it was it was a trip like starting in like freshman year and like cultural appropriation was like the trending topic. And it was just like a lot and like girls were white girls were wearing cornrows for like uh the flag football game the annual flag football game it was just like i don't know it's just i finally like found more of myself to like come out you know and show and, everybody and we also met yeah we met we met junior my <laughs> junior <laughs> you made a friend in marblehead and yeah i made a it. friend so because i didn't have any friends all my friends were <laughs> that sounds horrible but all my friends were like in mecco and that was they're more like acquaintances mostly most of them but I didn't have anything to like like I didn't have like you know I couldn't go over to anybody's house really like I didn't have any like stuff like that like to just chill at somebody's house and stuff I didn't really have that so what were the cultural appropriation comments topics like what did that look like for you I remember like talking about it in my history class and um nobody really understood it they're like there was this boy in my um, class who, who was a friend of mine and he created this like post about why the white girl shouldn't be doing cornrows and stuff. And it kind of like spread across the high school and they didn't understand what the problem was. And I really wasn't at the point to be like, I didn't feel like I really knew enough. I feel like I was educated, but not like to the point where I can just like school somebody and stuff. Like the way I can talk now, I was just so like, to myself and like I didn't have a voice really so I just heard the comments and it like I had butterflies in my stomach the whole time I had so much anxiety just like hearing the conversation but yeah they were just like I don't understand you know it's just hair you know like that regular jargon and stuff so it was definitely hard to listen to but I really was like um I have no voice like I I don't want to shake the table too much like so if Shelby from now could go back and talk to Shelby from ninth grade, what would the Shelby now in her time machine say to Shelby then be like, you should go say this, this, and this. I would definitely be lecturing <laughs> everywhere I go. I think I would definitely be like talking a lot. I'd be annoying a lot of people, like not being afraid to annoy people, not being afraid to not be disliked 
or liked, whatever. Yeah, I just be lecturing people really on how they don't, they're incorrect. So, yeah. And Nia, was hair something else that played a part in your childhood and your development that maybe, maybe kind of separated you from everyone else in some sense without it actually being said implicitly? A hundred percent. I think when I went to Mar- start first started school, first started to go to school in Marblehead, I went to a charter school, and it was very small. There was like thirty kids in my grade by eighth grade, and it was really easy to forget that I was black. But one thing I could never forget was what I looked like and what my hair looked like, and that was always something that. I would find myself, I even remember like sitting in class and just staring at my friends, like why I want to look like, like I want my nose to look like that, or like I want my hair to just sit like that. So it definitely did play a really big role because it was like the things I couldn't ignore and the things that really separated us when we weren't talking about like politics, but what politics are you talking about when you're 14? So, yeah. So what politics were you talking about when you're 14? oh, I love Obama so much. Like, it was just like <laughs> that. It was. It didn't go beyond serious things. Because we didn't, I don't know. When you're in a Marblehead and then in a charter school on top of that, it's like a bubble in a bubble. So the world is just like <laughs> far, far away. Yeah, we used to make fun of the charter kids <laughs> at Vets, I guess. Like, who is that? Like, what are those kids? Blah, blah, blah. Like, they're yeah. to themselves and stuff like <laughs> Yeah, I got bullied. Like we got bullied when we entered high school. That was like yeah, a that was bad. You that, got bullied when you entered Marblehead because you went to a charter school in Marblehead for middle school. Yes. It sounds so ridiculous, but it was like an entire thing. That's ridiculous. It wasn't just me. It was like the whole it was only like 15 kids who move on because anyone from any town can go there. But the 15 kids who move on to Marblehead High you're like done the first year. No one wants to talk to you. <laughs> How have conversations evolved from your first couple of years in Marblehead to now about topics, any topic really, but, you know, topics around race and identity and that conversation of cultural appropriation, Shelby, do you think people maybe are more open to the ideas of the post that the guy made saying, hey, you know what, like maybe that's not the best thing. How are conversations evolving? Because my hope is that they're evolving. And as you said, that like people grow and people find their voice and they find their footing and they find their community, which is really important. And then they're able to kind of be like, oh yeah, all right, this is how I feel. And I'm going to share that. But how are things when you guys, because you're both not in Marblehead, but you can both, you both probably go back, maybe you still have family there or you spend time there. And so what are the conversations currently happening in Marblehead around, um, you know, you could pick whatever you want, but like a simple one is like Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Like for me currently, what like what I've been seeing, I guess, is I don't even know. Like, I don't even feel like it's like BLM anymore because BLM was like 16. That was like the next year for me, like sophomore year. It was like BLM versus All Lives Matter. And that, and then Colin Kaepernick, damn, like high school was a lot, but um, I think there's like a growing consciousness. I feel like uh, definitely those kids from 2015, I don't think they're really saying that anymore or hope really. But I think the conversation kind of has shifted to, for me, I've seen like a lot of 
focus and highlight on black women and uh like the violence that they kind of go through but that's really what I'm seeing because I'm a black woman so that's really the circle that I'm looking at for white circles I've been in and this is a demographic like 16 through 20 ish I think in my freshman year so 2016 the conversation was very weird and it wasn't to be had like spoken of and then I think now they're going to agree with everything you say depending on who it is and if they're not going to agree with everything you say, they're, they're you're never going to really get in a big argument because the people who know it's going to end up in an argument never say anything anymore. So I think, but then the people who do just agree with everything you say, they're not any more knowledgeable than they were in 2016, in my opinion. They just were fed mainstream, like, concepts about race. And now that's what they know, but like the way they interact with black people and their actual own personal, I think ideologies, most of them just stay the same and it's usually ignorant. What's something that you think is a basic concept on race that the mainstream media would feed someone who would allow them to maybe then agree with everything that somebody who's by POC would say? don't say the n-word that's the premises of anti-racism in like small white communities i think by just not saying the n-word and acknowledging that and then listening to black people and they say you can't say it that's like you're anti-racist like in their eyes it's like okay i'm not racist i think now too another thing is actually you saying like blm putting just blm on any social media saying black lives matter that you are anti-racist that you've entered the door of anti-racism like you're a good person now that you've said this um i've been seeing and that i a think lot. it's beyond strictly white communities because even in college there's projects that non-black girls would, will do <clears throat> and it's like an identity piece and what one specific girl I saw in one of my classes, she just scribbled black or she scribbled a cab on her on her T-shirt and passed it in as a project, as an identity piece. Like that is a cab and Black Lives Matter. You say that in your like set. It doesn't even matter. You don't even need to explain it. You say you stand for that and you're 100 percent anti-racist in everyone else's eyes. I had just, can I go off a little bit on a tangent a little bit? I had just had this conversation with this boy that went to my high school. And I mean, we're not really that close, but we're acquaintances. And he posted something about, you, you've heard of like the Meg Thee Stallion, Tory situation, everything. And he posted uh, like something kind of like supporting Tory, I guess, whatever. And I just felt like I had to say something because I just found it really funny because he like, he posted throughout the summer about like systemic oppression and blah, 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 and Black Lives Matter and this, that, and the other. But when I was talking to him, it was like his, what was it? His response was, I agree with everything happening in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm like, what does that mean? Can you explain that? Like, can you explain what that is? Because like a part of that is talking about like race and gender violence and like what black women go through and stuff and the intersectionalities of a, of what black people have to go through. And he just couldn't explain anything. And it was just like really interesting to me to see that uh, play out. 
and just see like nobody has learned anything from the summer. Nobody learned anything. And they what do you mean? What do you mean? Nobody's like, learned anything. Cause that's because that's because that's a, like a it's a pretty good, you know, it's a pretty big statement. They did it. They like <laughs> they pretended to, they posted everything that every like whatever account created some cute graphic about like stop this or blah 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 blah. Like anything about systemic oppression, they posted it, um, petitions, this, that, and the other, but they didn't actually read. They didn't actually like go into like why it's like, like why mass incarceration is happening. Why they just didn't go into anything like at all. And it was just really, it's really noticeable when you actually like have a conversation about race and it's like, they're not educated at all, but they will say, I believe I support everything you guys are doing and that's it. I think they just learned how to listen more and like sit back, observe, and then listen again. Like, I think that's pretty much what they've learned. I don't think it, I don't think it's necessarily, they didn't learn anything because <clears throat> there are little things that have changed, like TV shows getting episodes canceled for Blackface, you know what I mean? Like tiny, tiny things. But I think those tiny, tiny things are because they learned how to listen and that was pretty much it. I think those tiny things were performative really like a lot of them were just really like not like the show like cops for example they said they're ending that but then they're like bringing it back and it's just funny to see like all the performative things people did like buying books or and not really reading them and I don't know it's just it was just all really performative in the summer social media has been really interesting to see and I think that's where the world that I have, which is like people from the new school. I did the Peace Corps, friends from Peace Corps, friends from outside of my local area in the North Shore. It's interesting to see the dichotomy between their Facebooks, their Instagrams, their social media presence, and the social media presence of people not from this area. Because Mm -hmm. I feel, and this is how I, I was raised in Beverly, but I was born in Columbia and I was adopted. So It was a complete identity situation. And I've always felt that in Beverly, people are really, really afraid to share their opinions if they know it's going to make other people feel uncomfortable, even if if they're living in their truth. And their truth may be, hey, I don't like it when you say that. I don't find it comfortable that you have a Blue Lives Matter flag on your house. But people won't say that because they don't want to ruffle feathers. And I think that that is a lot to do with like suburbs and you want to be a good neighbor. But even though everyone in the suburbs, no one really knows one another. It's in some sense, that is kind of why I miss New York City or I miss living in college because you're in a dorm and you're surrounded by people and you're really forced to interact and build community in some sense. And so sometimes if you're not doing that, it's harder to have more real conversations. Do you guys see that on your social media presences as well? The dichotomy between maybe your Marblehead or your Salem crew. Am I alone in that? Or do you guys also see that pattern? I mean, my Marblehead crew was all white and no longer exists. <laughs> and then my college crew is all black. So <laughs> what, what do you mean your Marblehead crew no longer exists? Like they- I, my senior year, I just, my third eye opened. Like when it came to racism and I just stopped, like I, I don't know. I know one person that I still talk to and it's my boyfriend. Like I don't talk to any of those girls because I realized that they were all 
either they performed and pretended to be an ally or they just simply did not care <laughs> like at all they would post when it was time to post but they did not care they when it was time to post i've never heard it said like that but it's like it's like it's christmas and everyone puts up the picture of the tree you know what i mean yeah or like, it's halloween everyone puts up their halloween costume i've never thought of it like that it's like oh this is a societal understanding that we all need to flex on social media in this way. Therefore, I'll put up my black box, for example, when everyone just put up a black screen. I felt like that was a societal performance because it didn't matter whether your race or whatever. If you did that, I felt kind of like, ah, what is that really doing? How is that moving the conversation forward? Yeah, I didn't end up doing that, but basically everyone in Marblehead ended up doing that. Did that change how they treated me which is probably like I was one of the black kids that they knew like their entire life like one of them so I feel like when I'm in the room I know this is a rarity for you of having a black person in the room the way you act really just shows how you treat black people and it was it stayed the same it, it didn't change the ignorant comments didn't change it was just I posted my pictures I posted on my story. I gave it to you. I'm done. Like That's you it. just saw you're getting and what I'm going to give to you in person through dialogue. It's not going to change. I'm sorry, girl. I don't have time for that. <laughs> like That's how it, that's how it was. But the kids I know now, I mean, they're black. So I really didn't, I didn't see, I didn't feel that black people had to be doing anything on social media because we do it every day. Like I was doing this starting my freshman year, like being a so-called activist or quote unquote activist. I don't think I needed to show out for social media when the George Floyd stuff started happening because I, I did this. You guys just weren't looking. So this is the part of the episode where we had to log off of Zoom because yours truly forgot to get the premium package to have group sessions for more than 40 minutes. I know everyone knows this. And while we left off discussing performative allyship, we pick up looking at the educational system through the lens of institutional whiteness. I can't even describe like the there's no connection between the teacher and the student. There's uh -huh. no like classroom feel. So it's just like I'm getting information. I'm turning it in. I'm going to sleep. I'm waking up, getting information, making it into an answer. Going, to, You know what I mean? It's just a big it's like high school. High school is like such a routine. And you just like get your way, you just get through like, like, it's just so. Mm -mm. <laughs> you know, the hard part about college to me was that the people I looked up to all dropped out of school. You know, it's like Steve Jobs left school, right? And we're on Max right now. And I'm just like, I don't know. So I always struggled with the idea of education because I'm like, some of the people that have changed the world left school and they're like, yeah, duh. <laughs> yeah, me and Shelby always talk about that because yeah. education is whiteness. It's, yeah, it's a scam. Like it really is a scam, really is. Because it's like, cause that's what we look at as success, right? Like, and what me and Nia break, broke down is success is whiteness. Like that's what it is. Like professionalism is whiteness. And that's like what we're learning and school so it's just like how do you get closer to success how do you get closer to whiteness like that it just coincides together if your professors are also white they're feeding you whiteness 
they're feeding you education through the mouths of a white person. It's never, you rarely have a teacher that's a person of color. Yeah. Rarely. And I don't think it ever will cancel out because it's always majority white. So you're getting fed white ideologies. Yeah. Reach success, which is like whiteness. This is an interesting thing that you're saying this because I, I went to school in Memphis. I went to school of Rhodes, which ironically is the undergrad of Coney Barrett, who is going to be on the Supreme Court. So that's a whole thing. Rhodes will call me up and they'll say, hey, you want to give us money? Because that's what they do in their colleges and colleges are forever going to bug you. UMass is going to be calling you Shelby forever and Nia New School forever. And my thing with Rhodes is I said, I will give you guys money when you have the same student body and faculty that's representative of the United States in its breakdown minimally. And that's like a minimal thing. And then I think it's an interesting conversation what you're talking about, Nia and Shelby, which is the idea of like, if education within our education system is whiteness, even if you have a professor who's black, indigenous, person of color, however they identify, they may have still been brought up in a system that was based on whiteness, if that makes sense. It's this could be also, I mean, this is institutional racism. This can also be said around the police system too, where people are like, oh, but there's black cops. Oh, there's Latino cops. Oh, I'm like, well, they're within a structure that is based around whiteness and putting that at a higher level. And so, you know, Nia, you just left high school. Shelby, you're a junior in college, maybe have a year left, maybe a little bit more depending on your course load. And are those conversations, have you ever brought those up? Well, I feel like, me and Nia kind of came to the epiphany this summer. Honestly, like that came to me like this summer, honestly, just like, like what is success? Like, what is that? What is, what is college really applying? Like, what does that imply? Like going like that just came to me and like sitting and sitting in classes now it's, 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 I don't know. It just like, I don't know. It's a shock and like, it just messes with me because it's really like, we're just learning whiteness. It's just so, it's so weird, like to sit in class. And there was this other like Zoom meeting thing that I had. And it was like all about like professionalism in the workplace. And like, yeah, it was just all about professionalism and professionalism is whiteness too. And it, it, it was just really weird to look at how we're just trying to emulate this thing and be it really feels like you're like this one person like this one robot really like it just feels weird really and i think that like again we're, we all have such different experiences i think for me the reason why i realized it before i even got into college was because i already lived with white people prior and prior to that i lived with a black person my entire life so the way that I acted, it was just high. I was hypersensitive to how I acted compared to all the other white counterparts in my home, even though they were good to me. And my my foster mom, she um, works in nonprofits, helping minorities, does all that stuff. Even though they were technically doing the right thing and they were saying the right things, there was still a major disconnect and little things like even just dinner table conversation. Why why do I feel this way? And you're just so casual. There's just things we don't understand that no matter how hard you try, it's just like, that's what happens. And I think that's why I figured out the whole college thing so quickly because I was like, how is, 
how are people like the people I live with teaching me about life and what's okay and what's not okay, right and wrongs, when they barely understand how I function? What's one thing that you would say is like a little thing, just being at a dinner table, that something would come up, they would take it casually, but you're like, hey, this is a much bigger issue that I'd like to dive deeper on. But maybe you don't because of how casual they were able to just kind of dismiss it. I mean, isn't that called a microaggression? Just microaggressions. <laughs> like microaggressions are so small to white people or to the person that it's not affecting or to the aggressor. Then to you, it's like, this is a bigger. And microaggressions are thrown around in white spaces so, so, so casually that even if you tried to say, oh no, I think this, like, oh no, it's fine. Like, what are you talking about? And then the conversation's over. Or even black experiences of I'm like I think black women are one of the most disrespected people in the world their idea is oh no I think it's just women you know what I mean the experiences don't align so the ideologies are so hard to combine together like let's reach this consensus together how are you gonna do that when you don't have any understanding of how my life is and how would that work in education if you have no, if you have a very minute understanding of just one person, and it, it, I'm just talking in my experience, so many white pe people can't understand how I function. How is a whole education system going to tell a whole group of people how to live life? Shelby, how, how about you? Especially like with like classes that teach like black studies. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> I like that really just came to me because. I don't know. I took this class last year and it's like, like we're talking about race, class and crime. It's really we're And when people say race, like if you're, it's just black, like it's not even all races. It's just, we're talking about the black race. That's really it. And it's, it's a white woman teaching it. And it's, it's just really like, I just like, I like the content, but now I'm like, where's the content? Like, whose mouth is it coming out of? Like, that's what I, I always just liked. Oh my God, I love talking about race. Let me take this race class. But it matters whose mouth it's coming out of somebody who hasn't gone through that. <laughs> like, uh, it's like a, a, a white upper-class woman talking about Black people and how their arrest rates and, and mass incarceration and just stuff far removed from her life, like her life and how she lives, like it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense at all, really. Again, it's like white people teaching black people about their history and their sociology in a white yeah. life. And they, and again, it's <laughs> like a big yeah. circle. And they mask it in like, oh, it's research. Like that, that's weird to me too. Like um, the outsider research thing. But yeah, they just mask it in this research. Like we're researching like for the, the whatever, general psyche of America, whatever. But it's like, it matters whose mouth it's coming out of, like whose brain, like you're seeing this happening, but like, how is your brain really like, thinking about it and like processing it because you're going to process a different way than me like a white woman's going to process something uh, about race different than me it's interesting to see <laughs> that stuff right now it's really interesting as young black women where do you find the best information or influencers or online you know portals just places where you guys 
can find information. And you're like, yes, because you're totally right. If you hear something from someone and you hear it from the same, from a different person, the same words, it can have a completely different meaning from start to finish. I'm like trying to think, cause I'm trying to think of influencers that have inspired me throughout my like journey of being in a white community. Or just even friends. Cause sometimes, I mean, your friends are your biggest influencers when we I get down to it. I think it's for me, mainly friends. I don't really, influencers are already like a weird concept to me, like on Instagram. So I feel like I'd try to stray away from that. But I think my influences just in general are definitely my friends. And I think what I got a lot of my information was from, was from honestly my brain. Like things just started coming. Like I had a general idea of life and the way I, the way I was thinking was normal. And I think throughout high school, frustrating things kept happening and then it just started turning gears and suddenly my senior year I was like fully just I feel like my brain just was on at all times I know it's and I learned actually learned recently it's a form of anxiety like always just thinking and overthinking and then making like these very strong connections about race with everything but when you're in a white community and things just keep going wrong and you keep feeling like hopeless or upset about other racial things that are happening, your brain is the entire time, the entire time you're here, you're just trying to put it together. Why, 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 why? Yeah. So then eventually that why started making sense. And I was like, okay. What helped me too is meeting Nia. Cause I feel like I was coming to conclusions like that all the time, but I didn't have somebody to voice it. Like to say like, oh, you're right. Like what you're saying is right. Like, I just thought it was like, you know, pushing that microaggression to the side, like, oh, it's it's whatever, it's not a big of a deal. But having somebody like Nia and like meeting her and having being able to talk about these black experiences in a white space, it, it validated me. It validated me, like, yes, like what I'm saying, what I'm thinking, like, is correct. You know, it's. I used to think I was angry or just like I did too much, and mm-hmm. I always had that feeling, like, why did so many things not work out? Why did I end up in so many arguments? But it was because. I was right. I just didn't have anyone around me. It felt more like angst mm. than an understanding of like race. Yeah, you're like, yeah, I'm just looking within and I'm finding answers that are really great for me. And Shelby, it's the same. I feel like for me, like 2016, when I don't know, people were becoming like freedom fighters. That's what I like to call them, like activists, like the young activists was like, there was this trend of young activists. So I was like, like a big one at that time was like Amanda Steinberg. And she created this video called like, don't cash crop my cornrows, talking about cultural appropriation and whatever. And um, just bringing that more to like mainstream for me, because I just never seen somebody like talk about it. So I feel like seeing young activists was something for me. And like watching videos, like what is systemic oppression? Like there was just a lot of those videos coming out during that time. I don't even know how to explain it, like on Buzzfeed or something like, it was just little things like that helped me. But again, I couldn't like put it together in my own life. Like I was like, okay, that's a thing. Oh, I didn't know like, okay, that microaggression happened to me. Somebody was touching my hair. Somebody said I was in Mecco, like blah, 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 this, that, and the other. I just didn't like put it together that much. Yeah, I think me and Chubby's experiences are also different because I experienced a lot of, because I was in like with the white kids a lot more, I experienced a lot more, Mm -hmm. which was like why I was able to come to a conclusion without like 
really paying attention to activists or what was going on like on social media and stuff like that because I had like the first hand like okay that was really bad you know <laughs> what's your generation and I say your generation because you guys are fairly close in age I mean y'all may y'all y'all became friends in high school so I think that that's okay to say mm-hmm. what's your generation looking for moving forward what are the things that you really want to see? And it doesn't have to be like a strict policy. Like, I want this policy to change. It could just be more like, no, I think this, this, and this probably need to be altered. For me, I'm thinking abolition, like, cause everything, there's no reform for me because like reform means that there was something good there that started there at first and there never was. So for me, it's abolition. That's what's on my brain all the time. <laughs> That's what I think of all the time. Cause yeah, it just seems redundant trying to like reform something that was just never there. So it doesn't make sense. I think what's always on my mind is definitely like the concept of whiteness and how white people aren't deliberately trying to eliminate that idea of themselves but are still claiming that they're allies and I really don't think that will happen anytime soon like eliminating whiteness I don't think that's in our cards for right now I think that's like it will take decades for that to fully happen but I feel like what what do you mean though eliminating whiteness because white people inherently have these traits that have allowed them to maintain power for so long. And it's like being ultra oblivious, super passive aggressive. In times of like urgency or commotion, we get very professional and lose emotion. Like it's very, yeah, it's just very textbook things and you can look it up. And I've observed that in hanging out with white people and being around white people. It, it all connects because if Black women can die of hypertension, have a higher chance of dying from hypertension because of slavery. And we inherit that, or like um, the birth rates are lower for black women, or you have a higher chance of dying if you're um, pregnant, if you get pregnant when you're black. And those physical issues can pass down to generations and generations due to slavery. Do we not think that white people also have some traits that maybe they carried on <laughs> that helped them stay at this very high point? So when I think of like something that I hope to see in the future that I think is possible, I think black people taking their kids out of super white environments to make their education good. Cause it's like, I think people are now, I think our generation is more aware how traumatic being in super, super white environments are, good education or not. Like I did get a good education, but the amount of trauma I have, I would never wish that upon my child or anyone else's child. So I think taking their kids out of those communities will become more common and will help in realms of like black excellence and like development. And I think also more black teachers will start hitting the field more black teachers black therapists etc etc um i want to add on to that like in marblehead i mean thinking about it now uh because i feel like more in tune with like like my body and what it's going through i was anxious all the time like all of the time like walking around walking in school probably where it wasn't was like i mm, kind of sometimes in my house but it was just like this everlasting anxiety everywhere i go because it's like everywhere you go it's telling you don't belong like everybody's telling you you don't belong and you do not know why but you just don't and you just carry this like 
am I supposed to be here? Like, and it's this like anxiety that just builds up. So yeah, I don't really feel like that's like the best place, but of course, like my mom is thinking success, like Marblehead, like in the North shore, like Marblehead is like Marblehead. Whoa. Like that's crazy. You live there. Like that is what emulates success. And my mom being an immigrant was like, yeah, that's, that's the American dream. Like I'm reaching it. And that's just whiteness. So. And Shelby, if you could ab- abolish one thing, what would that be? The electoral <laughs> college, the electoral college that needs to go. Oh my gosh, that needs to go. Okay, the electoral college. And Nia? I honestly don't even know. I feel like my lens of the world is just so like, I feel almost not radical, but I feel like the way my brain is, is just like, this is how it's going to be for a very long time. And yeah. I can't even think of one thing that could slightly affect how the black experience will change. Cause I feel like it's such a massive, it's like a massive load of stuff that affects our experience and why it often is so negative in white spaces. I don't think like, I can't even think of one thing other than whiteness and whiteness is so many things. Like that's a big umbrella term for like so many different categories. So I don't know. Do you think people who you've gone to high school with are gonna vote now and maybe they wouldn't have because of something that they've learned out of the last year and a half? I think in 2016, neither of you could vote, right? Mm -mm. So now that you can and your generation can, what are things that are maybe hopefully going to get people to go out and vote? Well, I feel like what I've always seen is politics is always in the white sphere. It's always been there. It's always been something prominent and significant. Like politics is important. Like it doesn't matter if like the the child was not into it. Like they were around that with a black person, I don't feel like they were around politics. Cause that's another thing for whiteness for me. Like politics is whiteness. Like that's their culture. Like that is theirs, like politics. And like, even in school, they had like the voter registration people come to my house. I mean, not come to my house, come to the school, come to the high school. Like, I don't really feel like every high school that was occurring, like my friends in like Lynn or Salem, like, I don't think that was happening. I. Yeah, I just feel like voting and like politics has always been important in the white. Yeah, because for me, like, I don't think anybody I know would not vote. Yeah. Like, I don't think and if if they said I'm not voting, it would be like, why that sounds so like redundant to me? Why would you not vote? I think it's also because my freshman year, I went to high school September 2016, Trump won in November, my entire eighth grade. I what I, a lot of what I remember in eighth grade was like conversations about Trump and like he was just a big meme so I don't think our like at least my part of the generation I don't think we don't I don't think we understand the life without voting because it was like you're 14 everyone's like vote 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 and then we vote we lose essentially we lose for the most part we lose and then they're like, vote, 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 vote for another three years until we actually get to the point. Because I've been hearing vote, it feels like all my life because, I mean, what I remember is high school. That's all I remember. <laughs> so I don't know. I think everyone will vote no matter what. And they're always going to vote for who's better main, in mainstream lens. And Trump is not better in mainstream lens. He was a little bit better in 2016 in mainstream lens. But now he's just no one who wants to no one who says what people want to hear is gonna not say that they're hate trump 
or they're not going to not say they hate Trump. Like they're going to be like, I hate that man, even if they might have some ideologies that match up with him. That's you're not supposed to say that. It's not cool. So they're not going to say it. Yeah, that's like another thing. Like people have taken on like, okay, yeah, I'm going to vote for Biden and everything like as their personality trait. Like that means again, that they're chasing this like good person thing. Like me voting for Biden means I'm a good person. Like means I'm doing something means that I'm not racist. Like it means all these things. Like I'm, I'm not Trump. Like I'm not a bad person. Like Thanks for listening to this episode and please excuse the end. Once again, the Zoom audio cut out near mid-sentence. Big thanks to Nia and Shelby for hopping on Wi-Fi and water. And we'll be sure to hear from them again in future episodes. Please follow us on IG and Facebook at Wi-Fi and Water Podcast so you can stay up to date on future episode info. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.